Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Steve Douglas joined Australian ska band The Resignators in 2010, and since then, he's become one of the main songwriters of the group. The Resignators have been one of the leading Australian ska bands in the past two decades. Steve came to the band with a lot of musical experience. He played in groups like Log, The Snake Charmers, Mud Helmet, and a little band known as Guar. Yes, he was a founding member of the infamous blood-soaked metal band. He was initially part of Death Piggy, the band that preceded Guar, and then played in Guar as the Jaws of Death until the late 80s, still during their DIY years. We talk about all of it, and Steve's excitement for this year's Supernova Festival. Resignators will be there. And Steve may even be giving away early copies of the Resignators' upcoming album, Rabbit Hole. Aaron, did you ever see Guar? I believe I might have seen them once. Where did you see them? I've seen Guar. I want to say The Edge. Did they play The Edge? Yeah, I saw them at The Edge. Okay, that must have been when I saw them. I wonder if we were at the same show. Yeah, we were. Uh, we, we shared the same blood. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I wore, purposefully, I wore all white to that show. White t-shirt and white pants. Yeah. And I came out like greenish gray at the end of the show. Greenish gray? Yeah. Just because like all the different fluids that they're shooting out on the audience, it's not just blood. Yeah, yeah. It's like all sorts of different made up <laughs> vulgar, vulgar fluids. Did you wear that shirt to school the next day? I must have. Yeah, I must have. I think I had to throw it away though because it was so severely stained. Yeah, that was part of the goal though, was to like show off, like look at me. Yeah. Watching that show though, I would have never guessed any any of those musicians on stage cared about ska. Yeah, the uh, the Guar ska connection is actually a very strong one. Yeah. We come to learn because our guest, Steve, a founding member of Guar, is a big time ska guy. Yeah. 
And how much do you think we're going to hang out with Steve at Supernova? Oh, probably quite a bit. I feel like we're going to hang out with him a lot. We really hit it off. All right. So I heard a story. Um, I heard a star resignator story that Dan Ponthouse came to Australia. Oh yeah, he did. And I don't know what the, I can't remember the context was you guys were rehearsing or maybe you were playing a show, but he was nodding off probably from that long flight. And you guys were changing all the lyrics to your songs to be about Dan. Oh, we did that. We did that. Oh, but that's what he does too. <laughs> you know, he, <laughs> I think my absolute favorite Dan Pothast moment, um, other than seeing him in, uh, Omnigon's, um, a new way video. Um, I think my absolute best Dan podcast was when we were in Wollongong, which is a lot of um, Australian towns are complicated to say, but Wollongong. Wollongong we played in has two lighthouses. And on the spot, Dan pinned up a song for the show that night about double dong Wollongong. And uh, <laughs> I think that one, that, that one's written, the lyrics to that are written in our tour bus on the wall. So, um, yeah, he was a great one to host. We, we love getting people down here. Um, you know, we don't have as much down here as you guys have over there. Um, of all kinds of products, it's hard to find Reese cups, things like that. But, mm. um, we, we really treasure bringing folks over and hosting them and, it's not easy to tour in Australia and distances, you know, and in the U S I was in Richmond. I could be in Philly in a couple of hours. I could be, you know, in Atlanta, you know, that or on the West coast, you know, you do San Diego, LA, San Francisco, you know, pop on up to Seattle. That's not a big deal here to get from one major city to the next major city is a minimum eight hour drive. So, um, we make it easier for them. Uh, and we brought down a lot of bands, um, uh, and hosted them here. The toasters were a great one. Mustard plug was right before COVID. They barely got out. They could have been stuck in Australia for two years. So was COVID starting to be discussed? Was it, was there an actual like literal issue or was it sort of like they got home and then realized, Oh man, no COVID was being discussed as we were winding down the tour. Um, the first cases of COVID, um, in Australia were on the same flight we flew back from Sydney to Melbourne and those guys left. And then of course all hell broke loose. They almost didn't leave. I think Nate lost his passport right before he left and (laughs) ended up finding it just in the nick of time. But, uh, then we, we were seriously locked down. You guys, you know, uh, had more COVID, but we had more restrictions. We, for God, 267 days, we had lockdowns. And when I say lockdown, you could not travel interstate. In some cases in Melbourne, if you were, we don't live in the city, we live in the country, but, uh, if you lived in the city, you could not go outside a five-kilometer radius. So I mean, it was it was pretty serious. That being said, everybody vaccinated, ninety-seven percent vaccinated here. Wow. Quickly um, kept it under control. Yeah, when everything happened, uh, the comedian Ronnie Chang, uh, who's a Daily Show correspondent, 
he was in Australia, I think. And yeah, he, he was talking about that. Like he was, had to quarantine in a hotel for like weeks before he was allowed to do anything. Oh yeah. No, that happened. That happened quite a bit. And, uh, you know, we got through it. (laughs) We're on the (laughs) other side. There's no restrictions now. People took masks very seriously. Um, we had a government ID check-in thing, which is, you know, everybody's worried about Big Brother tracking you, but Big Brother knows where you are anyway. Um, where, <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you went to the supermarket, you scan. When you, we, have, we have a shop here um, that Stace and I run, and anybody that came in, you know, was masked and checked in. And that way they had some contact tracing, I guess, which – in theory, was great. I'm not sure how well it worked, but the ultimate, you know, result was, you know, I don't know a single person that died from COVID. Um, I knew people that got it, you know, but uh, we got through it fairly unscathed due to those restrictions. So people kind of respected it. We didn't like it, but we respected it. Yeah, I think. Didn't you? You guys actually even opened before i know you locked down a lot harder but you opened earlier than like us i mean we kind of yeah didn't really fully lock down but didn't really fully open for a while but i i remember hearing that you guys were like going to movies and like doing all this and that before us because of probably the the way you took it at the very beginning could have been yeah could have been and you know you can't argue against government you'd kind of do what they say and you can <laughs> argue against government but in that case you know, I'm I'm not a spring chicken. I didn't want to die from COVID. You know, sure, so yeah. I did what they said. So you brought this year. You brought um, Catbite, right? That was the first U.S. ska band you brought uh, since the Muster Plug. Since Muster Plug, and it was awesome. Those guys are just so fun, and uh, we had a great time. We had good shows. Um, we played, you know, small clubs and stuff like that, but um, you know, a couple hundred seater kind of things, but. I guarantee you the next time they come back, it'll be bigger venues. There's no doubt about that. Oh, yeah. And you really couldn't ask for a nicer bunch of guys. We all got along really well and just easy to deal with and that sort of thing. And I'm really excited about uh, catching up with them at Supernova, which they're on 3 o'clock on the Saturday, the bad time block. That's gonna be <laughs> that's gonna be a good one. Starting with Bad Operation Kill Lincoln, Jay Navarro and the Traders, which I get to meet Ken Haas, who's supplied all my guitars for the last ten years. Um and Cat Biden, we are the union. And that's a afternoon of music, boy. And uh yeah. The comedian Aaron Gox, who we had on the show. Oh, I listened to that one. Yeah, he came out to the show in Brisbane and to be Perfectly honest, I had heard the name, but I didn't know who he was. And I listened to your podcast. And please don't think Aaron is representative of all of Australia. (laughs) 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 No, he's a a great guy. He's a funny, he's a character. But he plays this kind of, we have this word, bogan. It's not really redneck, but it's, it's its own thing. And he plays a character. He's got his mullet and his, you know, his sports and his Aussiness and stuff. But um, he was pretty well really like that when he came out to the show. Really nice guy. <laughs> don't get me wrong. But um, 
And to be honest, he probably does represent a very significant segment of Australia. So, yeah, <laughs> we've uh, since uh, since then I've stayed in touch with him and we chat online and stuff like that. I told him about the Catbite show. I was like, you got to go to the show and then you got to get a photo of yourself with Catbite and send it to me. And he did. We got a, he sent me a photo. <laughs> I got one with him too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, see, there's another band that you brought um, to Australia this year, uh, Death of Guitar Pop. Oh, we didn't bring them, but we opened for them. And they were really good. Um, but the weird thing was they, it's their first trip to Australia. They were just starting to, you know, slightly blow up and stuff. And they came with just three of them in backing tracks. Huh. And that's that's something that... You know, that wouldn't fly necessarily at Supernova or something like that. But it actually, it worked. It, it In this situation, it worked. Um, it was Ollie the singer and Top Cat the guitarist and another guitarist. I can't remember his name. And they were the three of them up front with our empty drum kit behind them. <laughs> and that that was the weird part, maybe, looking at a drum kit without a drummer on it. But they said they will yeah. come back with a full live band. They're great. They're um, they've got a you know a new UK slant to you know largely two tone traditional, but bringing in like modern elements. You know, he's got that little hip hoppy thing. They're from Essex, and that's uh, I think you know a regional dialect and and mindset that they brought to the table. Um, they were certainly nice guys and really fun. And I would love to see them with a full band. Yeah, that's, they are pretty big in England, but I don't think, I don't think they've ever come to the U S and I don't think many people here even know anything about them. No, who they are yet. Yeah. I don't either. And they they are, just on that cusp they went from like they went back to the uk from here and went from 200 seaters to 2000 seaters you know um yeah. so they're 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 happening over there and i can certainly see how um their formula and their their style of music would be attractive to a uk modern scott crowd Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about them is that you can really hear the Britishness in them, like different influences. Like you can really hear like the Brit pop stuff. You can hear the sort of the English post punk stuff in there. Yep. You know, two tone, but it's it's all kind of mixed together. Like you said, sort of that there's a little bit of hip hop elements. It's different and than the vocabulary. Yeah, the vocabulary. <laughs> it's not stuff you would hear from a U.S. ska band. Like the the way they put components together. So I always I always love that. I think there's quite a big difference between them and like the London band because they're from the south on the coast. And I think there's a quite a bit of difference between them, the -hmm. London bands and then the um, Midlands, Northern bands, you know, like Scapones or stuff like that. Um, It's got its own distinct style. And uh, I think that's cool. The Ska Nation Festival is something that you're involved with. Yeah, our singer Francis um, Harrison has done that for 10, 12 years now, maybe. And uh, it didn't run during COVID, and there was one other year off, but mostly run every year. It's, um, 
you know, a Melbourne-based festival that's moved venues different different times. Uh, uh, the first show I ever played with the Resignators 12 years ago was a Ska Nation. That was a baptism by fire. And uh, I think that one we had Chris Murray and um, a lot of a lot of the um, the Bennies before they were the Bennies, they were the Madonna. They were called Madonna then. Madonna <laughs> and uh, Madonna. I know <laughs> only Auntie's sense of humor would work with that. Um, um, they're one of my favorite Aussie bands. Period. They're just so fun. The Bennies, um, and I think they'll um, Auntie just retooled. There was. Um, the band that had run for about seven or eight years, a couple of the guys decided family life and was, you know, it was a kind of an amicable dissolution, but, um, Auntie, uh, the singer and main songwriter put together a new, uh, band up. He moved from Melbourne to the gold coast, put together a new band and it's been out, They've been out the gate about six months now and kicking goals like quickly. They've already been to the UK, Europe, New Zealand. Um, they have that huge, it's a party band, you know, it's a pot smoking party <laughs> band and, and it, it works. And uh, yeah, I think they're great. Um, but yeah, Sky Nation has been a, a, a I guess it's like our little supernova, you know, or something like that. Yeah. What kind of crowds does this uh, festival bring? Um, you know, well, we did it at the Corner Hotel, which is Melbourne's like number one best venue, which holds, what does it hold? 800, something like that. And it filled it out. Um, uh, we did it at the SB in St. Kilda and Nick Cave neighborhood um which is another big old iconic ancient venue and that one that one's about the same uh this year it's going to be held outdoors at a um country regional like oval they call them ovals here but it basically means it's a sports sports arena um and uh it's going to be held there i would anticipate probably like between a thousand twelve hundred this year, we have Mad Caddies on this year, so um, that is helping the draw. And the Bennies have been added on Melbourne Skull Orchestra. Um, a lot of a lot of good. You know, there's only so many ska bands in Australia, but there's some good ones, and uh, um, we got most of them on there this year. But Francis, that's his his yearly, his annual effort, you know, at <laughs> keeping Sky alive um, in Australia. And uh, we were going to do it last year with Mephiscopheles was going to come down and then and Agri Agrilites and Agrilites had to cancel. So the whole festival got canceled, um, which was sad because I love both of those bands. And, uh, Mephiscopheles was invited for this year, but they had a conflict in schedule, so they couldn't do it. But we get to see them. They're, are they at Supernova? Well, I'm looking at the schedule. I don't think so. No, no, they're not. Oh, okay. 
<laughs> I might have to make a side. I might have to make a side trip and find out where they're playing. Yeah, yeah. Just or maybe just <laughs> swing by their house. <laughs> <laughs> they recorded their new album in Muscle Shoals. Good lord, I would be, I would be wetting my pants to be even walking in the doors at studio in um, um, Alabama yeah. that put out Aretha, Dwayne Allman, and Percy Sledge, and Clarence Carter, and Otis Redding. I mean. I can't even imagine. Eric Molina, who played sax with them on that new record and has been touring with them, he's going to be playing with us at Supernova. Oh, so that's really nice. nice. Yeah. So what are the bands, like what are the main Australian ska bands right now? Uh, well, us, um, Melbourne Ska Orchestra, just phenomenal, huge, massive, you know, force of nature. Um, it's Nikki Bamba is, is pretty cluey and, uh, they got signed with the ABC, which is our, like our NPR or something, Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Mm. So they get support and they need it cause it's, you know, it's as many as 30 pieces. Um, they're playing Sky Nation, I think with a scaled down 19 piece. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but they're they're huge and they're great, and I go see them every chance I get. Nikki um, Bamba, who leads the band, um, played on one of our tracks on our new album. I just it was COVID, and he was bored, and he said, "You got anything to record?" And I sent him a track, um, our track "Messenger," which is kind of a slower reggae-ish tune about Bob Marley getting shot in 1976, and he turned around four percussion tracks in like 24 hours. I was like, wow, you really were bored. But um, <laughs> we also borrow some of their horn section every now and then. And one of our old trumpet players plays with them. And uh, Pete Mitchell, who plays baritone um, with Melbourne Skull Orchestra. Whenever I need a baritone track on a song, I just send it to him. He adds it on and... Um, He's done that with three or four songs on our new album. So, yeah, uh, the Bennies, absolutely. You know, their their own style of party rock ska, but definitely ska. The Porkers are back out playing again a lot, and mm -hmm. uh, um, Pete, you know, is up in Newcastle, so we don't see them down in Melbourne as much. But we did a show with. Benny's Porkers and us uh, at that corner hotel. Um, in fact, that's the only time I got COVID. <laughs> and I think we all got back from that show. And uh, uh, I think Pete said, oh, I got COVID. And I went, oh, God, I'm glad I didn't get it. Um, Auntie said, oh, a couple of Benny's got COVID. And I was like, oh, I'm glad I didn't get it. Next day, it was wham. So, but I wasn't. It was not a big, it was worth it. It was worth it. <laughs> what was your symptom that made you go, oh, I, I've got it? Um, the, the wife couldn't eat. First, I, I cook all the meals here, and I cook really well. And, I mean, I cook like au cuisine-type meals daily. And I cooked her this beautiful fish dinner with fresh-caught fish, uh, red snapper, and 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 she said, oh, I'm not hungry. I can't get out of bed. Mm. And I went, oh, really? Wow, that's weird. And the next day I had the same thing. The cool thing was we 
were isolated when it happened after that show. Uh, we have a, a share in a sailboat up in the Whitsunday Islands. It's like the beautiful part of Australia. Um, it's very cheap. We, we are one-tenth owners of a sailboat. And after that show, we flew up there. So we were at sea, just the two of us and the dolphins and the whales. And, uh, you know, we didn't have to interact with society or anything like that. So it was actually the ideal time to get it. And it passed in 48 hours. It was just malaise, you know, mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so, um, Steve, normally, normally yes. we bring on guests that are, you know, we have, we have, we have plenty of guests that we brought on that are not ska musicians. Don't play the ska band. Um, but they have a ska past and, uh, you're a little different. Well, I have a ska past, but I have a, a non-ska past as well. So you have, you, but you're a present, <laughs> you're a ska musician in the present, but you have a guar past. <laughs> that is true. And that, that will haunt, that will haunt me the rest of my life. No, <laughs> I think this is after your time, but I got to ask, this is where we have to start. Guar played Gilman in 1989 with, with Op, Op Ivy. Were you in the band or was that after your time? That was literally months after. Uh, <sighs> I know. Uh, I never made the West, West coast with him. I did. I was there from day one with Dave, Dave and um, Dave Brocky, Odorous Youngers, um, rest in peace, was basically my best mate. And uh, he and I had a little hardcore trio with a drummer named Sean Sumner, who's also dead, um, that was called Death Piggy. And um, it was getting some acclaim. It was, we called it Silly Core. But it was yeah. in those days of early hardcore. Um, I don't know why, but Ian McKay liked us, and there was some Discord connection there and stuff like that. What do you mean there was a connection? Where you, like you played with those bands, or was he considering? Well, we played together, and yeah, and he he distributed the first record and stuff like that. Um, it was uh -huh. all happening at the same time. Uh, we played with Scream with Dave Grohl, you know. Um, we played with all those butthole surfers, all those bands that were coming up back in that time. But Death Piggy would do, Dave was a, a freak. I mean, he was a super intelligent freak, as you might imagine, would spawn uh -huh. a beast like war. And um, every show we would do something s special and stupid. And, you know, like one time we had a cat shit filled pinata that the crowd broke filled with money and cat shit. So the coins hit the floor, but it was all covered in cat shit. <laughs> actual cat shit. <laughs> yes. Actual cat shit, you know, in a, in, in a dog club. So, um, okay. Wait, first I got a question. Well, where did you get this cat shit? From our, from, from our rehearsal spot. <laughs> from, we, we had, we had a, a rehearsal room that had cats in it and, uh, it wasn't, the greatest place to rehearse but it was our place and uh you know so we would do stupid things like that we'd take all our rubbish from home and bring it to the show and dump it on the stage or dave would put on a uh vinyl suit and fill it with mayonnaise um 
It was performance <laughs> art from the get-go. But we all, a lot of the bands in Richmond, which was a great scene, Richmond at that time was phenomenal scene. Um, we had great clubs. We had, it was a cheap place to live. We had lots of talent. We had an art school, which helped spawn Guar. Um, we all rehearsed in this old abandoned milk bottle factory, took up a square block with literal milk bottles built out of bricks on the cornices and stuff. And um, in that same building was a, a film crew from film students from Virginia Commonwealth that were making a B-grade horror film called Scum Dogs from Outer Space. And we saw those costumes and we said, oh, okay, it's Guar, it's on. And Dave and I, I think we wrote the first album in like three hours in, you know, that cat shit filled rehearsal space. And we became Guar. So initially, wasn't Guar like a, uh, an opening act for a Death Piggy show? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a substitute for a Death Piggy show. Yeah. We never what do you mean? opened for ourselves. And we just, Death Piggy became Guar as one of the sticks, you know, as one of the, the routines. Oh, okay. And then Guar just grew and kind of surpassed Death Piggy. They kind of overlapped. We'd play a Death Piggy show. We'd play a Guar show. You know, um, I was in three other bands at that time as well. So it was a busy, busy time. You know, there was often two shows a night, run down the street with your amp and get to the next show, that kind of thing. What were the three other bands, Steve? Uh, there was one called Mud Helmet, which was... I guess it, it was drunk punk. It was New York Dolls, Ramones, kind of. In fact, we we opened for the Ramones a couple of times, and that was a highlight of my life. This is definitely very fun. Um, Cheetah Chrome from the Dead Boys joined as a third guitarist for a while. That that kind of band, I guess you would say. Um, there was one called the Snake Handlers, which was really spooky southern goth kind of gun club um you know deep dark kind of imagery and songs uh and uh what was the other band i'll get to them there's a lot of them um but it was a busy time in richmond what were the main venues at this time that you guys would play shows at there was one called uh originally called rockets with a C-K-I-T-Z, I saw, it was where we hung out. It was our local, you know, it was a good club. It was good production, good bookers. Um, I saw, I don't know, 300 shows. It was our Gilman Street, you know, mm -hmm. and um, not always punk, you know. I saw John May all there or Bo Diddley, you know, as well, but they brought just just about any kind of alternative music as well. Um, and that was our main haunt. That changed names to Rockets, to the factory, to Metro, but it, it endured for, God, at least 20 years. And um, it, was, it was a huge one. Then I started booking at a, a club called Twisters, which was, um, this was right after I got out of Guar. 
So I needed things to keep me busy. Um, I just had a baby and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and I started booking in Twisters and Twisters ran for another 20 years. I booked it probably 12 of those. And I was bringing in, it was, it was a 400 capacity club if you packed them in. And we did often. I brought in Rancid and, um, you know, the last show I ever booked there was Mighty Mighty Boston's. Um, But also I did three bands a night, seven nights a week. So there was so many of these cool bands. I can't even barely remember. And you'd never hear from them again, but they were really good, you know. Uh, the Iowa beef experience just popped into my head, you know, things like that. These bands, um, cause Richmond was a great spot being in between, um, DC and Chapel Hill. It was great for routing. So they could do nine thirty club or DC space or black cat and then twisters and then pop down to one of the Chapel Hill, Hill venues. Um, so that was, you know, it almost killed me, but, it was ranks up there with one of my greatest experiences in my life was booking a, a venue for 10 years. So what were some of the other bands in that scene, other punk bands in Richmond? First one I just thought of was, cause I was thinking about him the other day, Inquisition, which became strike anywhere, Thomas um, Barnett, um, mm-hmm. four walls falling. Uh, let's think of other bands that actually had some acclaim. Um, Lamb of God, Randy used to come to my club when he was underage and <laughs> I did a lot of all ages shows, but if it was a 18 and up show, I would let him in and, you know, on the sly so he could, um, check out bands. And I booked the first 10 burn the priest pre Lamb of God band. Um, that was the band. That was Lamb of God originally was Burn the Priest before they changed the name. I booked all their early shows. That's probably the greatest success out of Richmond, even over Guar, you know. So, um, and Guar is doing really good these days. Uh, they're, you know, <laughs> I, I kind of wish I had waited to settle up financially with them until now, but, uh, uh, you know. They they ended up by, <laughs> put it this way they ended up paying for a little bit of my music you know expenses in life which obviously music costs us more than we make most people so um, that worked out um, and I'm I'm there's nobody in the band now that was in the band when I was there nobody oh actually I take that back um, the singer is the old bass player from the band when. I was last in it, not when we started, but I'm really proud of them. And it's great for Richmond and, and, um, you know, good to see anybody succeed period. And, um, their last couple of records were produced by, um, a good friend of mine, Ronan, um, Chris Murphy, who lives out in LA. And he, um, literally sent me the masters for our new album, the resignators new album, this morning. So he worked with us as well. He's worked with people like King Crimson, you know, things like that. <laughs> Pretty big dogs. When you think back to Richmond, uh, Richmond scene in the eighties, were there any ska bands? Yeah, there was, there was a great one called, there was one, 
Well, actually, no, there's two. I take that back. There was um, one that was a little more alternative um, that was called Burma Jam. I remember the first time I saw Bim Scala Bim, it was with Burma Jam. Um, and there was another one that was, uh, they started off alternative and they ended up kind of huge mainstream party band in Richmond, in Richmond called the good guys. It was, um, three brothers that were three black brothers, um, the Gore brothers, um, Harry, Jimmy, and I can't remember the other one. Um, so they had that family band thing and uh they had a lot of soul they and they did great ska and they had a horn section some of the best horns in richmond um that was kind of my introduction to seeing horns in ska they were and they were around kind of before the third wave really hit maybe concurrent with like the toasters and things like that the early third wave um so yeah. uh, it was, and they were, uh, you know, I saw them a hundred times. They were a great band. They never failed uh, the dancing and stuff like that. Um, you know, but uh, that was about it. Oh, no, there was, there was, um, after I left, you know, Reed, uh, Reed Attaway's band. Oh, what's the name of it? I can't think. Now he plays with uh, Eastern Standard Time. He had a, a great band, but that was right after I left. There was another band called Fighting Gravity that had a bit bit of ska, but they were a little clean cut for my taste. Um, it wasn't huge. We were bringing in more out of town ska. Um, I don't think we had enough horn players in town. <laughs> I think that was the problem. <laughs> but that being said, you know, you're talking about my history and ending up ska and coming through from guar i came from ska and as far back as anyone pretty well goes i moved to the bahamas when i was 11 in 1967 and the only thing the only thing i could pick up on the radio was ska how did you end up in the bahamas as an 11 year old I was a lucky 11-year-old. Uh, dad worked for US Steel. He was an engineer and, you know, self-made man who um, came back from Korea, went to uni and got his engineering degree, worked at, in iron ore mire mines in Birmingham when I was a baby and got transferred to Pittsburgh, uh, where the main offices were in US Steel, and then got transferred to the Bahamas. Literally, uh, after I finished fifth grade, I was just starting to play music. Um, my orthodontist told me I couldn't play clarinet anymore, so I, I bought a guitar with my paper route money. I had a little band in the fifth grade that my teacher, Miss Arnold, had us play at our party, and I know we were horrible. Well, most fifth grade mm -hmm. bands are. But um, my going away present from my band members was Sergeant Peppers, which had just come out. So that, that puts a date on it. Mm. But I moved to the Bahamas and you couldn't ask for a better place to live hardly at that point. And the only thing that was being played was Sky and Calypso. That was it. I mean, that's what we heard. Every now and then at night, you could get Miami radio and get some rock or something. 
But my daily, you know, drive to school was listening to Prince Buster's new song or, you know, Byron Lee's or early whalers. And I was really fortunate that I asked my parents, could I get guitar lessons? And uh, they said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll ask around. And I got referred to these two women. I thought they were ancient. Uh, they're probably in their 50s or something, but um, they seemed really, really <laughs> old. And they lived in this little old Bahamian house, and they were the island music teachers. And all they taught was ska and, and calypso. So that backbeat has been in my vocabulary literally since puberty. And uh, it was, it's, I feel very fortunate to have come through that, you know. Can you recall how they taught you to play the ska beat? Oh, yeah. We sat in there, we sat in their lounge room and, and, you know, just banged away at it. And, uh, and it was all I was hearing. Uh, Calypso and ska both have that, that accent, you know, the, the, the skank, the upbeat stroke. Um, and it's basically stripping out the in-between beats to get to that accent of Calypso that became ska. These, by the way, my dad told me, my dad passed away last year, but he told me something I didn't know in the year before he died. Those women that were teaching me, the Kamler sisters, um, they were you know, two elderly Bahamian ladies. They were actually voodoo priestesses. They were advising, <laughs> yeah. advising like businessmen and government officials by, you know, divining with, I don't know, chickens and that kind of stuff. But um, I feel like I want to believe that, you know, that there was some magic there. And, uh, um, you know, that that's what did that. Um, you know, it's interesting what you talk about, how to get to that uh, upstroke, that that skank, that accent that defines ska. There is, I, I know it's a controversial subject, but there is a school of thought that that was invented by an Australian, first done by an Australian. Really? Have you ever heard this? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know about the Caribs. The Caribs, that was the name of the band, yeah. Yeah, Dennis Sindri, who was... Uh, <sighs> There was it's just an amazing story. In 1958, there was a Aussie band from Melbourne, you know, where we are, called the Caribs. They were playing kind of Afro-Cuban jazz of the time. It was kind of a thing back then. And they got this call to go play the Glass Bucket in Kingston and took the call. Dennis Sindri, Peter Stoddard, uh, Lowell Morris. Only Dennis is still alive today. The others passed away in the last couple of years. He's 87, maybe something like that. I've talked to him on the phone a couple of times and um, I've chatted with him. He lives in Miami now. They went to Jamaica to play a two-week gig and stayed the rest of their lives. And they were the Sessions guys on all of the early federal um, Cox on Dodd, all, all the uh, Ken Curry Federal, and um, um, they were the guys. They were the studio band. They brought in a young Alfonso to play. You know, they brought in Lloyd Brevet to play the first time. So the Aussie influence on ska 
when when Bach was down here touring with the Toasters, I told him about this. He said, "You're full of shit. That's bullshit." <laughs> and I said, "Look, you believe it if you want to. It's true." The next day, when came back, he went, "Oh God, I'm so sorry. I never knew that. I researched it last night. It's so true." You know, they played with Laurel Aitken. Um, they were the first studio band for Island Records. You know, they went there and they met, of course, Aussies meet Aussies. They met this guy, Graham Goodall, who was an engineer there putting in the first FM station in Jamaica. Um, that was his job there. And um, he, you know, set up Ken Corey's record pressing for him. I talked to him before he passed away last couple, two years ago. Um, he told me all these great stories of being in this, in the studio. And, you know, Bob Marley walks in with a crew cut and dressed in a suit asking Mr. Goody, could you please record a song for us? You know, things like that. So Aussies were on the, <laughs> they were on the ground day one. And Ernest Wrangling probably deserves, you know, getting that upstroke. You know, we know it it did happen there. But there is a school of thought that Dennis was there and did it. It's kind of concurrent that the two of them came up with that at the same time. And um, I think that's great. It's just awesome that Aussies were at ground zero. You know, so uh, it's pretty cool. I have a ska guitar question, especially because you, you were taught in the Bahamas as a child, there is a discussion about that the proper way to play a skank is stroking down. You know, it's still on the upbeat, but you're stroking down. They say no. That's if you if you dig into. I do a lot of downstrokes and on the accent because I'm coming out of punk rock, you know, chorus before it or something like that. Uh, just just depends for me. But the upstroke um, thing, Dennis talked about it in, in a couple of interviews, and he says that he was in the studio with Cox on Dodd, and he wanted it to be crisp and crisp, and he kept trying that downstroke, and he said, no, 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 it needs to be crisper, crisper, it's more, it's more sharp. And he tried an upstroke, which, of course, attacks the higher strings first, and he gets, that's it. Mm -hmm. So I would say no. I would say it should be an upstroke. No. Yeah. The, but should you know, be an upstroke. But you know what? If you get there and it feels good, it, it doesn't really matter, you know. And and we're we're not purist and uh, I'm not, certainly. Um the beauty of ska these days is how many manif manifestations it's had. Looking at the supernova lineup, the difference between you know, we're going to be on the stage with Westbound Train. Westbound Train has this soulful Obi with that voice that just makes me cry all the time. And and that 50s doo-wop soul that was was a big part of ska and originally. And we're we're not that. We're like wham bam, thank you, ma'am. We're more from the Omnigon kind of school of, of or Kill Lincoln kind of school. <laughs> Let's hit him over the head with a sledgehammer and see if it hurts, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, you just, Adam really likes the fact that you're, you're saying, you're defining there being an Omnigon school of ska. 
<laughs> I think there is. And, 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 and what I'm getting at is there's so many, you know, um, just, you know, looking at, at the line up here, oh, Fishbone, I'm probably more excited to see than anybody because I haven't seen them since the late 80s. I mean, the last time I saw Fishbone, Angelo jumped off the stage, ran through the crowd, ran up to my girlfriend and bit her nipple and ran back to the stage. And <laughs> she never washed that nipple again. Uh, it's, you know. <laughs> and, and look at what's coming. Tokyo Ska Paradise Orchestra. What the fuck are they? Jesus Christ, what a huge, you know, monster of varying sounds, you know, that uh, suicide machines back to the the heavier thing, you know. Cat Bite um, goes each direction there. They get heavy, they get light. Um, so many cool things. And I think ska should not be pigeonholed or defined as this is the ska, you know. Um, when Two-Tone happened, I was just out of uni and, you know, I'd already listened to a little bit of police and clash thinking, oh, this is cool. There's some island rhythms coming into the punk rock. Cool. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Two-Tone happened. I was like, whoa, they really got it, you know. Um, but that's, to me, you know, there's there's no one way to do it. It's it's there's it's a modern world. There's a million ways to do it, and I want to see them all. You know, <laughs> I really want to see yeah. them all. Hell yeah, amen. Yeah, uh, you know the whole thing about new new tone. I think I know. I was talking to Tim from Catbite about that, and you know they've been labeled that, and he doesn't like new tone. I think new tone's cool. I think okay, it's another way to talk about it. Cool, that's great. Yeah, mm -hmm. third wave, second wave. You know, trad ska, uh, soul ska, jazz ska. You know, I listened to your interview with the New York Jazz um, Ska um, Orchestra. And, you know, there's so many ways to express it. Oh, and I, I still have more Guar questions. For okay, you. back to Guar. <laughs> I, knew, to go back to I Guar. knew you would do that. I knew you'd do that. Okay, I heard that your first, the very first Guar show. So we established that you, the, this local filmmaker, you, you, Co-opted his costumes for the show. Hunter Hunter Jackson, yeah, Hunter Jackson. He he didn't get as much credit as he should have in the the end of things because it basically, in my mind, it wouldn't have happened without him and Dave Brocky. You know, the two of them equally. And so, also the first show, did you did you use real cow's blood? We did, and my amp stank. <laughs> For the eternity after that. <laughs> In fact, remember I said we opened for the Ramones once. I accidentally left that amp because Dee Dee got me really, really drunk. I left it at the venue, never saw it again, contacted the venue, said, oh, what amp? I don't know. You mean that thing that smells like dead cow? No, um, that amp went the way <laughs> it should have. It disappeared into the ether. And yeah, we had not thought it through at that point. Dave did not always think things through. He had great ideas, but the ultimate final outcome, you know, the catch it filled pinata, you know, for example, but the, the cow's blood somehow got in. It was a Marshall combo with Vince in the top. It got inside there. So every time I turned it on, 
I could smell oh. roasting dead cow's yeah, blood. Cooking. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, we did that. Our, our, we had snow at the uh, first one because we were from Antarctica. I had my girlfriend at the time bring me like huge garbage rubbish bags filled with um, uh, styrofoam peanuts that we threw out as the snow, you know, it was that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, yeah, tell us about your costume. Uh, my costume in the old days was nothing like the costumes these days. You know, we made them ourselves. My jaws, my ball sack jaws of death were made from an old catcher's uh, mask that a baseball catcher would use um, with paper mache. I sewed a little fur loincloth um, G-string with a skull on it, um, I took I took my boots and coated them with spikes, you know, that kind of thing. It wasn't the spectacle that you see um, in these modern days, you know, uh, where it looks like a Hollywood production. No, it looked like a uh, <laughs> a B movie production. So, okay. So, how much cow's blood did you use at that first show? Can you remember that? I measure things metrically now, liters at least. I don't. I don't know. It was too much. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> how quickly during that show did you realize you'd made a huge mistake? I don't think we realized it until days afterwards. Yeah. Okay. So during the show, totally fun. During the show, oh, during the show it was all fun and games, no doubt. You know. A lot, of, a, lot, a lot of the guar mistakes we didn't realize till later, you know. What are some other guar mistakes? Uh, I had a sexual encounter on stage in New York at the Limelight on, on stage during a guitar solo. That was probably not the best thing to do at the time, but <laughs> I, I didn't get AIDS and, uh, <laughs> you know, I survived it, but... Uh, uh, I think it upset a few of the other band members who were not getting serviced on stage. So I don't know. Guar, <laughs> <laughs> Guar, you got to remember this was before Guar was even accepted. You know, we played a club in North Carolina once. Um, I think it was, no, it was Raleigh, not Chapel Hill. And, you know, the lights are on you. You're not really paying attention to anything. And you finish the show and came off the stage and the owners had left. They left the venue. The staff, the owners were gone because they were scared. And we were like, well, how, <laughs> how do we get paid? And we, well, there's beer here uh, and cigarettes. So I guess we'll just take that, <laughs> you know. Um, they actually <laughs> evacuated the building to avoid dealing with these monsters, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> they thought you guys were actual monsters. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. There was, uh, there was, an, in <laughs> there was an incident in Connecticut with, I think we played with uh, Seven Seconds or somebody like that, where we were making our own flash pots for the stage with metal ashtrays oh, and gunpowder and electrics. And yeah, we had what we called slaves or guar, you know, guys that ran around the stage, helped with the props and this and that. And one of them almost, he, he, I don't know if he has eyebrows to this day, put it that way. Um, it was, wow. it was <laughs> close to a, to a real disaster, but not quite. So this this would have been after your time, but um, there was a legendary guar incident at uh, this club where I grew up, near where I grew up, 
called the Cactus Club in San Jose. Oh yeah, it was it was after my time. Yeah, this was after your time. This would, this would have been like uh, late '80s or early '90s, probably early '90s. Yep. Still, still early then. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So Gar's doing their whole sti- whole whole show, blood everywhere, and somebody had climbed up top to the rafters and had fallen during the set. So it was not part of the show. It was just an audience member, mm-hmm. and everyone was confused. Like initially, people were like thought it was part of the show because the show's so over the top. But then, like people put it together, they're like, "Oh, wait a minute! This guy actually." fell and hurt himself we better call an ambulance he got hurt oh no yeah yeah so ambulance comes no one gives them a heads up all they see is blood oh, no. everywhere oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and they come in they think it's you know, yeah and the people are like, no 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 it's a, it's fake blood it's it's fake because the guy didn't die or anything he just needed you know he just needed to go to the hospital they thought it'd been a massacre yeah, exactly. I do remember uh, uh, we opened for the Butthole Surfers once for Christmas. I just saw the flyer the other day where we crucified uh, Techno Destructo upside down on a pentagram dressed as Santa Claus. Um, but that that show, <laughs> I remember somebody struck one of the like um, the spew characters that has a built-in jugular that spews out the blood and his head flew out into the crowd but it had a sharp edge and it did it did hit a guy in the head and he got scarred i think he was okay with it it was like kind of like going to a gg allen show you know you kind of expect to (laughs) end up either shat on or you know beaten or something so i think he was yeah he was all right with it so as far as i know there's been no no deaths and no tragic injuries, just minor infractions. Yeah. Speaking of, speaking of the the slaves, the Guar slaves that you brought up, the time that I saw Guar, somebody tried to rush the stage and just got pummeled by those guys. Uh, it could have <laughs> could have been. Could have been. That was kind of the coolest thing to be about Guar at that point was like, oh, like everybody's in on this and they they're rolling like eleven deep right now. Built in security. Yeah. Yeah, not quite like uh, <laughs> not quite like when I saw um, the Rolling Stones on Keith's thirty eighth birthday in Hampton, right where Supernova is happening at the Coliseum. There, a guy rushed the stage, um, and this is on film because it was his birthday and they were filming, and they had all the balloons and all that. And he was rushing. This is shortly after Lennon was shot, you know. So everybody was, if you're a rock star, you were on edge, you know. And a guy, I'm sure it was harmless, you know, but he was rushing the stage and running towards Mick. And Keith does this kung fu move where he slings his guitar off his shoulders, carries it like a baseball bat, and decks the guy and knocks him flat. And <laughs> slings it back on and doesn't miss a beat. And uh, starts playing. And, and plays yeah. again. And, and like, doesn't even look over, you know. It's... Uh, yeah, that is on some YouTube video. Um, but I was at that concert. That was cool. Mm. Yeah. Oh, man. What a great show to see. Oh, it was. Was Gore basically playing with punk bands in those days? Oh, yeah. Oh, we were a punk band. To be honest, the reason I'm not in the band anymore is it started becoming what, to me, it started becoming what we were parodying in the beginning. 
Um, we started mm-hmm. that band to parody metal, you know, to make fun of metal. And um, it has become metal, you know, which it, it is what it is. Um, but no, we were we were a punk band first and foremost. And the first record, you listen to the, the first record, which is the one I played on. And it's it's a punk record. You know, it's produced by Kramer from Bongwater and Shimmy Disc up in New York. It was um theatrical punk you know and mm-hmm. you know i listened to some metal you know parkway drive lamb of god I, I don't mind it but i'm not a metal guy i like punk rock ska you know this this a lot of other a lot of other styles as well jazz you know whatever alt country you know there's a lot of things i like but um yeah, meta, it it became what it was a parody designed to be a parody of, and to me that didn't sit right. And you know, a lot of people don't know it, but I talked to Dave before he died. To him, it didn't sit quite right either. That's a, probably a very controversial thing to say. And luckily, there's not many Guar fans that will listen to in defense of Scott to get upset about that. <laughs> so <laughs> interesting yeah yeah i mean and they got much bigger too once they really became a metal band oh they did well there you go <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it kind of says it all uh yeah and you know in the days i was in it i was i assumed it would never get big because you know punk rock didn't get big back then you know it didn't get any bigger than yeah. butthole surfers or you know they crossed over you know this you got to remember this is before punk rock was like green day or you know blink 182 or you know things like that to it was when punk rock was still punk rock and uh yeah um you know i'm sure you, you guys saw it in san francisco which was a hotbed of it you know it it the punk scene did did morph. It transformed as it as it crossed out of the underbelly into the mainstream, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, and you know that's kind of cool. It's great that suburban kids can punk out now too, you know. So it gives them something. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about the uh, creation of your character? So your character was Jaws of Death, right? Yeah, it was. It was basically, we kind of, you know, we all worked out of this slave pit, you know, rehearsal space, and we would get stoned and play board games and, you know, watch horror films. And we kind of developed the mythos as a co-op, you know, and that I think that still goes on to this day. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not mm-hmm. privy behind the scenes now, but it was very much group efforts, people sitting around suggesting things. And, you know, the, um, um, I thought, I I thought I had the coolest character though. I really did. You know, the jaws of death (laughs) are striking. If you ask our fans around the world, 62% will say that jaws of death is their favorite character. No, I'm just, (laughs) uh, Dave really, Dave really developed odorous, you know, because of his voice, as you know, his 
quick wittedness, his cleverness, you know, he could interview like nobody else. You know, he was in character always. He, you know, he, he had it down. He was a very clever fellow, you know, fuck heroin. That's all I can say. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. He told me he had, he told me about that last time I saw him in Melbourne and he told me that he had gotten over it and um, was doing better went to Japan, went home. And that was that, you know, I think he probably, you know, I, everybody that goes on tour, I think feels this when you go on tour and you come home, there's this kind of emptiness where the shows are over yeah, and it can, you know, it can kick in with depression or with um, just bad feelings of, you know, why am I not out there still having fun? That kind of thing. And I'm afraid that's what hit him. Um, but he was taken too soon. There's no doubt as many are. Mm -hmm. I used to say that that coming home from tour felt like stepping off a train that was going a hundred miles an hour. Oh yeah, you nailed it absolutely. Even coming home from vacation is like that. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> For real, uh, I've I've already you know we're gonna have this monstrous time you know both as a vacation and as playing over at Supernova, and I've already told my wife we got to be prepared for when we come home. You know, back to reality. You know, yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, you you have to prep yourself and and deal with it because you know you can't always have thirty eight great ska bands from around the world every weekend. You know, at your back door. So uh, I I'm so excited about that. It's hard to contain my excitement of Supernova. That is, yeah. I mean, Jesus, it's just it's almost too much for a person to take in a weekend but I'll give it a go. <laughs> so you weren't in the band, you weren't in Guar when they played with Operation Ivy, but did you hear any, did you hear about that from the other members? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, not specifically anything that happened or anything. Um, you know, to we were East Coast guys, so to us Operation Ivy was just, um, you know, what was happening out in the Bay Area at the time, you know. So, um, yeah. we didn't foresee that, you know, Tim would go on to be such a force with Rancid and stuff. And I did book Rancid in, in a 400 seater, you know, so couldn't do that these days, you know? No. <laughs> oh, you were talking about the bands that were from Richmond, Avail. I missed Avail. Oh yeah. They all came out for that show. Tim, Tim Barry, and they've started playing again, which is great. And I think of all the Richmond bands because of the lookout connection and um the time and and circumstances, I think they were probably the biggest Richmond band on the West Coast, um, you know, as far as being known on the West Coast. And it's really exciting to see that, you know, Tim's doing his acoustic stuff now and we, he, we played with him in, um, or they did an afternoon show with him and we played in the evening in a club in Canada on our last tour. So I got to hang out with him and Tim and I lived two doors down from each other. So we were good mates and, um, it's good to see he's got his, you know, train hopping, um, hobo, 
um, acoustic thing that'll keep him going, but they can throw a veil back out there and they do it, you know, a couple of times a year now. And it's huge. It's still huge. My little daughter, who's uh, 26 out in Seattle, she flies from Seattle to New York to catch a veil, you know, because yeah. she was a baby when they were playing, <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. I feel like all these bands have like realized you don't have to stop. No, you don't. And and hey, that's what's cool about ska. You don't have to stop. Yeah. It doesn't matter how old you are. I'm yeah, I'm 67, guys. 67 fucking years old. Yeah. And you know what? I can get up there and I can rock and I will do that until the day they put me under the ground. Hell yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't matter, you know, Bucks Buckets is the same age we're months apart. Um, you know, it, it really, or some of these guys, Stranger Cole, you know? Yeah. Stranger Cole doesn't even know how old he is. I I don't know how old <laughs> he is. <laughs> <laughs> we asked him, he, he was like, he's like, I'm not actually sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think, oh, I hope I get to that day. <laughs> yeah. But that's a really cool thing about ska. There's a certain amount of fashion and ska and, and you know, um, imagery and, you know, the two-tone thing and um, different ways to express that. But um, there's a million different ways to express that. And uh, it certainly doesn't matter how old you are. And I think that's a really cool thing. So you joined the Resignators in 2010. Um, Had you been in a ska band before that? Um, not a ska band like this. No, uh, in the Bahamas, we were playing early ska when I was a teenager and we'd go down to the, like the sailing club and parties and the Bahamas is, is a really social party kind of place. It's like, there's a party every night. And did you have, did that have a band name? Oh, it was, <laughs> it was called. Acid, acid, acid. <laughs> we thought we were so cool. <laughs> hey, I tell you, I tell you this: my band in uni, which I recorded an album that never got released, and we, I went to William and Mary, and it was kind of a small scene there before I moved to Richmond, and there was no venues really or anything. Um, but we played at a couple of parties, and we played we put out an album and not put out we recorded an album and that was before punk rock hit so there was like six major labels that was it didn't stand a chance in hell of releasing music at that point so we but it was a good album and it had a lot of sky influence it had backbeat because that was where i came from it was more i guess where police and the clash were coming from all right, we got to get this album released. Uh, I've tried to track down the tapes of it. My last cassette of it got destroyed in a flood. I've tried to track down the Oof. engineer. I've tracked down all the other band members. I think it's gone to the ether. I think it's it's history. Oh, but I, I remember the songs. I wrote full- All horn. right, let's re-record it. Well, I might have to do that. I wrote- wrote full full, yeah. full horn section lines for it my first time writing horns um we went and shopped it in new york uh, todd rundgren knew a friend of mine who gave him addresses and said go to these people and you know we're walking into 
you know, the major labels and trying to get in the door. Um, and actually, the only people that paid any attention, independents were just starting to happen. So Sire was there and Rolling Stones records, they were the most receptive. And they said, oh, yeah, this is cool. Um, send us some more. And we didn't have any more. And um, they released <laughs> they released Jim Carroll's All My Friends That Died instead. So, um, you know, it was that close. Oh, shit. We missed that one. But uh, um, so I did play Sky and that, but that band had the unfortunate name of Parallax, which sounds so much like a metal band, which it wasn't. Parallax. Pa- Parallax, which is like a physical, something we came up with in, in you know, astronomy class or something. But we almost called it because we also had uh, Eastern philosophy class, we almost called it Nirvana. Seriously. It was <laughs> it was like a coin toss between the two names. And and that was, we ended up with Parallax. I wish we had done Nirvana. You could have been on uh, MTV in the 90s. I was on uh, Night Flight on USA Network. And I did take Dressed as Ballsack, with Lisa Harrelson, who was Guar Girl at the time, dressed in full regalia, walked into MTV's offices in New York, growled, walked up to the desk and slammed a VHS on it and said, play this or we'll destroy you. And they <laughs> they didn't, but... Um, Did it work? No. Nah, oh, they didn't? They, okay. They passed it on to USA Network and they, they aired it. So that was cool. So we got to see that. That was... <laughs> That was in the days, you know, when MTV actually played music videos. Yeah, I was really, <laughs> I was really happy when Beavis and Butthead liked us because they didn't like many bands, ACDC and us. You know, that's about it. And uh, I think, <laughs> I think that's pretty cool that that you know we got the nod from them and uh, the Empire Records movie and stuff like that. So. Uh, Jerry Springer, Joan Rivers, all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. So we, that. Was that that was was that after your time the 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 Jerry Springer stuff? Oh yeah, that was right after. That was that was the year after all that kind of stuff, and they fed Jerry Springer to the uh, giant vulva, uh, chewed him up on. He came to the show, and they actually <laughs> filmed him being eaten by the giant toothy pussy. You know, so yeah. <laughs> So okay, so what what led you to Australia? Uh, I don't know what year you what year did you move to Australia, and why did you go to Australia? Eighteen years ago. Um, so I, I was I had at that point in Richmond, I'd I'd kind of burn it out. I I was running the label there with the Plan Nine Records, um, which is a great independent um, store. I guess it's like what's the big one in San Francisco? Um, Amoeba or is that LA? Amoeba. Yeah, Amoeba. It was part. Or it's of, in both. It's in both. Yeah. It's part of that coalition of independent music stores, and I ran, worked for them, and ran their label, and helped them sell rare records we'd find, like you know, keep alive. It was they were doing great then. What were some of the bands on the label? Uh, they were all local Richmond bands. Um, um, one of my bands, which was called a post guar band, called Log. L-O-G, not Lamb of mm-hmm. God, but Log, um, which I got from the Ren and Stimpy cartoon. I think 
But um, that was a real heavy, <laughs> heavy three piece with my then wife, my ex-wife, and a drummer that died yesterday, um, Holly Harris. Oh, wow. yeah. Um, she was from that Lunachicks L7 New York scene kind of thing and had come back to Richmond to get off the bad stuff. And um, uh, it was a real heavy three piece, kind of like Hole or Babes in Toyland or something like that. Um, and that was on there. There was blues. There was two blues guys that were just super talented. It wasn't genre specific. It was a way for the guy that owned Playing Nine, who was just super supportive of the local scene to support local bands. So basically he could do a write-off, you know, five grand every year that we'd put into music, you know, and uh, that was kind of the point of it. Um, we did like 40 releases. Not, it wouldn't be anybody you were really heard of. So 18 years ago, you got, you burnt out and you moved out. Yeah, I was burnt out. I, I, I had booked all the bands. I'd run the club. I did all the flyers. I, I'd played in all the bands and it just didn't seem right in Richmond anymore. And, uh, I was getting a divorce and, um, this, um, guy that I was at that point, I was playing in an alt country band called the Shiners with Wes Freed, who did all the artwork for the drive by truckers stuff. Uh, real great singer, real soulful, he, you know, people are jumping up and down about that guy. What was his name? Anthony Oliver and how real he is and stuff that the guy that the right wing's embracing. Wes was exponentially a hundred times what that is. The real from the Shenandoah Valley. And he was a punk rocker. He was in Mud Helmet with me. We did another band called Dirt Ball where Mud Helmet became acoustic just to play for an R.E.M post after party and it became a force of its own. Um, and then we had a band called the shiners, which was, um, you know, alt country, punk, punk country, and a uh, little bit of bluegrassy, but this guy from Richmond, who was a famous bluegrass singer, James King sang on that record. Um, just a thought I had one day and got him over to sing. And he, he said, Steve, I think you need to change the scene. I'm going to Australia next week. You want to come along with me? And I said, yeah. So I came down here and I played um, a big bluegrass festival here, did a, a um, tribute to the Carter family. So I did all Carter family songs by myself on acoustic guitar up in the Australian bush at this big festival, a big, pretty big festival with international people and stuff. And that night, first night in Australia, I was sitting up in the little cabin they provided me. Somebody gave me a bag and I rolled one up and I was looking at these incredible stars. I mean, you, you guys would not believe the stars down here on a clear night. We have like a thousand times more stars than you do and different stars. And, uh, uh, I was playing my guitar and th this girl walked out of the bush playing her violin, playing her fiddle. And that was my current wife. 
And, uh, you know, <laughs> we hooked up that night and, uh, um, <laughs> never, never left each other's side, except I had to come back and sell everything. Go, came back to the States, dissolved my, you know, existence there. And cause I could only come here with like a suitcase and a guitar. So, um, at that point I had a lifetime of possessions to rid myself of and, uh, settled all that up and came down here and have lived here ever since. And I, I don't think I'll ever live in the States again. I don't foresee that. There's advantages. You know, it's easier to tour, that you have more Reese's Cups, um, you know, things like that. <laughs> but <laughs> you guys are in a weird place right now. I don't know if you know it looking oh, from yeah. the inside. I think you know it. Looking from the outside, oh, we know it. I'm scared for my kids. All my kids live there. I have four kids, Seattle, Denver, Detroit, and Maine. And I'm worried about them, worried for them, uh, you know, as to what the future is going to bring. It's, I, I studied a, a lot of history. And I reckon that the U.S. has kind of run its route, you know? It's happened to the Dutch. It happened to the English. It happened to the French. It happened to the Italians. It happened to the Romans. It happened to the Greeks. It happened to the Egyptians. It's probably getting close to the end for the United States being top of the pops. And um, that's just my feeling. But um, And I'm not there, so I'll... All I have is what I read, you know, but and what I see. But um, God, it's it's pretty scary over there, you know. This next election is going to be a weird one. It's it's going to be weird, and it's going to be incredibly annoying too. Oh, it is. <laughs> it is absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I I feel a little better. You know, when Trump didn't get reelected. And by the way, he did not win the fucking election. Um, <laughs> just make it that clear. Wait a minute. No. <laughs> You're one of those two. No. Um, but I think that gave, you know, the, the U.S. a little bit of a reprieve and a little bit of an extension on how quickly this dynasty might die. But, um, you know, I, I do, let's face it, it's entropy, all things, you know, everything that goes up. Oh, by the way, that Parallax album was called What Goes Up Must Come Down. And that was, it had a space shuttle on the cover. But uh, <laughs> so, but uh, I think everything, you know, has its time, you know. We're all born, we all die, nations are born, they die, you know, so... I, um, I, I'm worried about you guys, you know, and, uh, and I'm, I, I'm living here. I'm still an American citizen. I could get Australian citizenship and I probably will. I could get, keep dual citizenship, which is good. But, um, I don't foresee myself living there again. If I did come back over to that hemisphere or that side of the world, I'd probably go down to Panama and get a place next to Dan Vitale down in um, the island off Panama and or the Turks and Caicos or south of the Bahamas and be close, but not in the U.S., you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. 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 But 
don't get me wrong, I miss it and I'm excited about coming home. I'm excited about eating American food again, going to, you know, restaurants and getting southern style biscuits and grits and, you know, there's Ooh, yeah. you got you got some things we don't have. What's the best thing to eat in Australia? Well, cat bite, um, I introduced um uh, uh, Brittany and Tim to what we call pies, which are savory lunch meat pies. It's like a chicken pot pie, but with more substance to it. Um, and they're they're everywhere and they're a standard lunch. And you get a good pie and it is amazing. It is just and they they really loved them. They really appreciate it. I personally have acquired a taste for Vegemite. I think me and uh, Dave Kirchmagesser, or whatever, however you pronounce his last name, from Mustard Plug are the only Americans that like it. Uh, Tim ate it. Adam likes it. Adam likes it. Okay. I'll bring you some. I'll bring you some. Yeah. Um, I eat that like as a late night snack really regularly, like every other night on toast with a lot of butter. And I remember the first time I tasted it, I thought, what the fuck is this? And <laughs> my mouth went, oh, my God. And now I, I eat it really regularly. They There's this thing called pub food here that, you know, all the – we call them hotels, but they're not really hotels. They're pubs. I guess they call them hotels for some zoning licensing thing back in the 1800s to be allowed to serve alcohol or something. Some of them have rooms, but it's really more a place to drink and eat. And pub grub, which is just standard, you know, kind of like your local bar and grill kind of thing. Chicken parmas are huge Um, here. They do those in every single pub. Um, so there's, we took a lot of our food here from the British and that's not necessarily a good thing. (laughs) I don't know. We should have, they should have been settled by the French and they would have done a little better. But, uh, um, it's, it's, it's pretty basic. I guess one big difference is we have a lot of really good lamb. Whereas in America, you know, you go to the meat section, it's mostly beef, chicken, or pork. There'll be some ribs or some lamb rack of ribs or something. Here, the lamb section is as big as any other meat, and it's really good. I do lamb roast every week, uh, slow cook, you know, shoulder of lamb and season it up nicely and cook it so it falls apart. And um, that's one thing we have. And we have, because we're an island nation, we got a lot of seafood, different seafood. Um so that's another good thing. But it's not too different from American food. Not so much. You know, still got still got burgers, you know, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, it took a while to call French fries chips. But Okay, so you, you joined um, Resignators in 2010. So yeah. you've been living there for a little while. Yeah. So, okay, so the first record that you're on from 2010. I'm not on that record. That's See You in Hell. They they released that. See You in Hell. Yeah, they released that. This is this is kind of an interesting story. They uh, Francis had contacted me about playing in the Resignators a year before I actually did. 
And I said, yeah, that sounds good, but uh, only if you want my wife to play. She plays keys and sax. And there's, if there's room for her, I'll do it. Because um, we were playing together in, in an alt-country band as well that I kind of started there. Um, and so he said, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Sounds great. And somehow in the old lineup in the voting, when it came down to the guitarist, somebody who's not in the band anymore or two two or three people that aren't in the band anymore had another guitarist that they wanted to get in. So they got him and I was like, oh, well, whatever. Cool. He lasted six months <laughs> and uh, he recorded that, <laughs> that See You in Hell. Then they called me back and said, oh, you still interested? And I said, yeah, sure. And so then we joined. So we, I did not play on that album but i've played those songs a hundred thousand times now and uh, i think it's a great album and i think the parts on there are good the songwriting's good since then i've kind of become the primary songwriter in the band and i would hope the songs are even better now we'll see (laughs) (laughs) so were you were you in the see you in hell music video Yes, I made that. That was my first task. Yes, that's in our town. That was your first task. That was, you know, when I joined the band, uh, he said, Francis said, uh, hey, you want to make a video for See You in Hell? So I went and rented a camera. I'd never made a video before. I'm getting into it now, though. I've just cranked out a video for our new album yesterday that I'm pretty proud of and blows that away. My learning of Final Cut Pro and editing and, you know, just techniques and that kind of stuff so the resignators they had a meeting they said okay we got we got the guy from guar so we need him to make us a zombie video no the zombie part was my idea and i learned a lot of that. <laughs> i i had that technology under my belt already i was already familiar with how to use latex so um that was guar tech that was guar tech did you learn that from one of your bands from yeah one of those dress up bands <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> we we filmed that for like you know no budget whatsoever with you know a rented camera um the cameraman i was going to get to do it at the last minute bailed so i did it myself all the girls in it are locals um that i called like 24 hours in advance hey you want to be in a zombie video okay sure um and uh yeah that that was the very first thing i did for the resignators and stace helped a lot with that too my wife so She's in that as well. And uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. So you you have a new record in the in the works? That is in the can today. Um, literally. Today? Well, I got the vinyl masters. Yeah, he just said he got the masters. I got the yeah. vinyl oh, masters yeah. back this morning. Well, actually late last night, but I didn't download them because the internet was sketchy and I downloaded them this morning. Um, so... It was about two years in the making. Um, did it all myself here. I mean, not just me playing, uh, recorded here. I have a really nice uh, a studio that I assembled during COVID. And I, I've recorded, I recorded a couple of the Shiners albums back in Richmond on, you know, 90s technology computers, you know, today with a Mac Ultra Studio and, four screens and good monitors and a UAD interface, you know, the technology really, if you want to do it yourself now, you can do it. 
And so I worked on that for um, during COVID and after COVID. During COVID, it was it was you know hard to get people over to do their tracks. Like Francis drives a cab for a living, so he could drive in and get through lockdowns and checkpoints and stuff like that. Um, and my main uh, trumpet player um, lives very close by, so he could sneak over. And uh, we tracked it on. Of course, I've got my wife here, and she plays sax and keys. And um, it was, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great. I think it's the best music I've ever done. You know, I really do. And I've done a lot of music in my life, and it varies from. It has a, it has a theme. This time, I wanted to get bigger than just normal new album. So it's kind of like the first ska rock opera. And, um, or mm, there might have been others that broached that came close to that. I don't know, Streetlight might have done something, but um, if they're ska, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> let's debate. Uh, no. no, I'm not. I think they are. Let's I not. think they are. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, got an Alice in Wonderland theme, and um, it's, I was, you know, kind of inspired by. I've I've got a deep musical history, so it goes goes back like a lot of a lot of the Who, Tommy's, you know, the Tommy rock opera or Quadrophenia, both of them had that. Um, you know, Rise and Fall, Ziggy Stardust, um, having a thematic um, undercurrent to it, and I thought the t- the title track is Rabbit Hole. That is the title of the r- album. And a lot of people went down that rabbit hole, you know, in the last couple of years. Um, you know, the songs, first verse of the song, Rabbit Hole, is about a trumpet player that is an ex-trumpet player for our band that is full-blown QAnon now. I mean, Oof. that occupies every cell of his body every moment of every day. And I saw QAnon coming really early. and. I warned my wife. I said, oh, this is not going to be good. People are going to fall for this shit because of the game theory, the whole insidious nature of it, you know. And sure enough, they did. And it persists. It's part of that election denial. It's, you know, Jewish space lasers causing those fires out in your state, guys, you know. It's it's almost hard to believe, even though I've read – the most unbelievable science fiction in the world, this still beats it, you know? So this has, it, the new album has that theme, that Alice in Wonderland theme, and it has characters that recur, you know, the characters from Alice in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter, the Cheshire Cats, an old girlfriend of Francis's from Germany, you know, the um, White Rabbit, um, you know, not, not to take anything from Grace Slick from your great town, but, uh, um, it's, it's got a theme that runs through loosely like Tommy was, or Ziggy Stardust. There's, there's recurring, you know, elements in there and there's recurring elements. I tried to do that musically too. There's themes. I did a, one thing that helped me was I did this COVID. Didn't we do a lot of weird things during COVID to occupy our time? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I took um, I did the Berkeley songwriting course. That was awesome um, online. And I, I also did the Yale classical music course. And 
God, that was eye-opening. Because I've heard classical. I listened to it. I studied music. You know, I know how music is made. But boy, going through, you know, 300 years of classical music in the course of a year really changes the way you hear music, listen to music, write music. And um, I like to think that I, you know, use some of that in this new album. And uh, there's two sides. Side A is the through the looking glass and is the more Alice in Wonderland theme. Side B is break the mirror. And that's like, you know, just trying to maybe get out of that rabbit hole. I don't know. Is there a release date or is that still being worked out? It's still being worked on. It's going off to vinyl pressing tomorrow. The cover's been done. It's been... This was the, the first album in the history of mankind where the cover was done a year before the album was done. Steve Kitchen out at um, Combination <laughs> 13 in Vancouver. Um, he perfectly fulfilled our vision for it. And uh, the album art's done. And, uh, yep, it, we will have some advanced releases at Supernova. So, yeah, okay. yeah it, it, won't, it won't be a officially released by then i think we're going to officially release it in november we have a, a cd release or i, I wouldn't even say cd because nobody's buying cds anymore um very few an album release show in november um i'm going to have some special edition usb sticks with it too so you'll see Ooh. How many viruses are going to be on those? How many would you like? <laughs> How many would you like? <laughs> All right, Steve. Um, we're going to go behind the curtain now. We're going to wrap this episode, go behind the curtain. And I want to talk a little bit about Joey Ramone. Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Scott, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024 these are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.